Hi, gang. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Avery. I am your host. Today, the archive thief who saved French Jewish history. In 1961, a librarian in a municipal archive in Strasbourg caught a visitor carrying pages out of a manuscript and stuffing them into his briefcase. The visitor, it turned out, was a widely respected historian who had done groundbreaking scholarship on the history of Jews in France. What's more, it would soon become apparent that this was not the first time Zosha Tchaikovsky had procured documents by questionable means. He had been doing this for years, before, during, and after the Holocaust, and the thousands of pages he'd collected had in turn been absorbed by important archives throughout the United States and Israel. Why did he do it? Was this an act of heroism, or was it a criminal act? Today, we're digging into this mystery with Lisa Leff. Leff is a history professor at American University, and she has just published a fascinating account called The Archive Thief, the man who salvaged French Jewish history in the wake of the Holocaust. Lisa Leff is speaking with us from her home in Washington, D.C. Lisa, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks. It's great to be here. How did you first hear of Zosha Tchaikovsky? Well, I was getting a PhD in French history, and I had decided on a topic about Jews in the 19th century. And basically, you couldn't do research in this field without encountering this name. Tchaikovsky was the author of about 200 articles that are still considered the kind of base for all of our work. And did people know anything of his background? And what is his background? Who was he? Yeah. So, I mean, that was never talked about. He was from a, a, the kind of background that you wouldn't expect to produce an academic. He was born in Poland in 1911 and came to France as a teenager in 1927 and really was from a very, very poor background and had been a worker and a communist. And it's just not the kind of person that you would expect would become a scholar. He was Jewish. Yes, he was Jewish. And he was part of that wave of immigration in the interwar years um, where, you know, the, po the Jewish population of France doubled in that period because of all these poor Polish Jews pouring in. Well, what made you want to find out more about him specifically? That was really happened in the archives, as I said. Like, as I was doing my research on Jews in 19th century France, it was um, quite evident that there were lots of pages missing um, from, you know, in all sorts of archives. And at first, I kind of assumed that this was normal, that all researchers encountered this. But pretty quickly from talking to people, it appeared that the, the scope of the problem was much larger. And when I talked to archivists, they wound up all telling me the story of this historian who had stolen from them. And I was just simply intrigued and you know, wound up collecting these stories starting you know, in the mid-1990s. And then um, after I finished my dissertation, that was when I turned to like actually doing research on Tchaikovsky himself and what he had done in the archives. Your book revolves around a mystery, not so much whether or not he stole stuff that we know he did, but why he stole stuff. Before we even try to answer that question, uh, let me ask you, what do we actually know about his deeds? How did he commit this crime? Where did he commit it? How much material did he take? How valuable was it? Give us a sort of sense of the scope of the theft. So this was one of the most, um, for me, difficult problems to deal with because – 
if you are a thief and you've been successful, there is no record of what you did, right? In the archives where he stole, all we have is the bare fact that things are missing. In a few cases, there were investigations, and that's where I could really um, figure out how he did what he did. So in your introduction, you talked about this case where he was caught in 1961. This was something where there's a lot of information, and we can use it to kind of generalize about his method and to understand the scope of what he did. So in this 1961 case, what he was doing was ripping pages out of bound volumes in the archives. Um, And it appears from another case in which he was caught in 1978 that this was a typical method for him. And then it was just very simple, you know, rather rather crude, as I say in the book. He was just ripping these pages out and stuffing them into his briefcase. It seems so insane and counterintuitive uh, when you think of sort of Jews and Jewish culture as this great preserver of culture and of books to then desecrate books so uh, uh, aggressively. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, and it's one of the things that historians and archivists really hold against Tchaikovsky. It's not just that he moved things. It's the kind of callous way that he treated these documents. I mean, it's not just the ripping. When you look at these documents where they now exist in American Jewish collections, they have writing on them. Um, In many cases, the pages are torn because in order to hide his... um, what he had done, he would rip off or cut off ownership stamps if they appeared on the first page. So in many cases, these pages are mutilated. Specifically, what kind of documents was he after? So that's the other thing is, you know, when you when you asked your previous question about um, how he treated these papers, um, the assumption there was that these are kind of uh, exceedingly rare you know, as if medieval manuscripts or Geniza fragments. And they're not. The kind of stuff that Tchaikovsky was interested in was primarily documents from the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. And it's just the primarily the everyday papers of Jewish institutions, synagogue papers, state papers, um, circulars, government documents, the kind of thing that you'd find in a modern archive. So no individual document was of any real value in the way that a medieval manuscript would be. It's more just the stuff of regular Jewish institutional life that he was after. How and when did he start this uh, collecting? Yeah. So he probably started this collecting in the late 1930s. Um, This is when he got interested in Jewish history. When he was in Paris and writing, he was working as a journalist for a communist newspaper called the Naya Pressa. And in that capacity, he kind of went all around Paris reporting on different things going on in immigrant Jewish life. And he made contact with a group of much more, much better educated um, Eastern European Jews, and specifically a man named Elias Cherikover who was the head of the historical section of the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. And it was in that capacity, um, you know, as just a friend of Cherikover, that Tchaikovsky started collecting. Because part of YIVO's project since the 1920s had been to go out and collect remnants of the Jewish past for its collections. 
So what Cherikova was doing in Paris was sending out volunteers to find any kind of documents that could be preserved um, for the study of Jewish life. Is there any reason to believe that he was doing anything illegal or morally questionable in those early years when he was just starting out collecting? Yeah. So it's hard to know because Tchaikovsky's collection from the 1930s was lost when he left Paris uh, during World War II. So we we don't have any of that stuff from the early years. What we do have is the material that uh, he collected when he was uh, in southern France in 1941, uh, recuperating from a wound he sustained when he was fighting for the French Foreign Legion in 1940. So he spent about six months in the town of Carpentras in southern France, kind of waiting for a visa and waiting for his terrible war wound to heal. Um, And at that time, he kind of passed his days going to libraries and, again, going out and finding every Jew that he could in this region and seeing if they had stuff in their houses. And we know that he collected a lot of stuff and sent it all to Yivo. It's pretty hard to know how he, like, if he came by this material um, by being, you know, whether, whether these Jews that he met in the region gave it to him, or if some of these rarer materials actually were taken out of the local libraries. Was he in danger at all in the war? So he was in danger twice. First, he had, uh, like most immigrant Jews in Paris, he made the move um, of signing up for the French Foreign Legion. And this, you know, he he would later say... um, they were volunteers who were drafted because if you didn't sign up, you, especially someone like Tchaikovsky, whose legal status was questionable, um, signing up for the French Foreign Legion was the only way to make sure that you wouldn't be arrested. Mm-hmm. So his life was in danger first as a member of the French Foreign Legion, a soldier in the French Foreign Legion. And when he saw action in, in June of 1940, he was wounded with a shot through the chest, which pierced part of his lung and caused him lifelong trouble. But then after you know he was released from the French Foreign Legion and was recuperating in southern France, he perceived at that point that his life was in danger because other volunteers, other people who had served in the French Foreign Legion, were being moved from their garrisons in southern France into these um, work camps and Tchaikovsky quickly perceived that that was not a good thing, and it turned out that he would be right, that those Jews like him who had been in the French Foreign Legion were eventually deported uh, to Nazi camps. Um, I want to get back to this question of his taking materials from France. I mean, knowing what we do now about the devastation of Jewish communities throughout Europe uh, in this period, it seems quite natural to think of what he did you know, taking all these documents as a vital and heroic deed. In the book, though, you argue that it's not quite that simple when it comes to France and and removing material from France. Why? Yeah. Um, And that has to do with not so much this early period, but the later period. Um, In France, 75% of the Jews survived the war. The numbers are not the same for the native community as they are for the immigrant community that Tchaikovsky was in. So in Tchaikovsky's world, many, many more Jews were killed 
right? 90% of the French Jews who were killed in the Holocaust were immigrants. Mm -hmm. So his community was much more affected. But all that said, the majority of French Jews rebuilt their lives in France after the war, which isn't true of German Jews or Polish Jews. The other thing that's really crucial is that um, French Jewish institutions survived this war. So that means their libraries survived the war and also their synagogues survived the war. So removing materials from those institutions is removing the past, right, what they've collected about their past from a country where they're seeking to rebuild. So it's one thing to do something like this, to have done something like this if he were in Poland. It's an entirely other situation in France where synagogues whose papers survived the war intact lost them because of Tchaikovsky. Right. It raises a question about sort of Jewish nationhood and can it just be moved, you know, just ship it across the ocean? Exactly. You know, in Tchaikovsky's point of view, and this has everything to do with his politics, in Tchaikovsky's point of view, Jews in France, Jews in Poland, Jews in Germany, Jews in the United States are all part of the same single community. So if YIVO, you know, this great institution of learning, is making an archive of the Jewish past, it's appropriate the materials from all over the Jewish world wind up there. French Jews didn't necessarily all feel this way. That kind of diaspora nationalism was common in Tchaikovsky's world, but most French Jews didn't share it. They were as committed to living in France as they were to being Jewish. Um, so for them, keeping their records in France was much more natural than sending them to a Jewish institution in New York. Tell me, what happened to his own family during the war? Yeah, this is um, a really sad story and I think tells us a lot about his anger and his sense that French Jewish life was dead. His, um, in France, he had three brothers, no, two brothers and a sister, so three siblings, and they were all married and two of them had children. Of all of those families, only one sister-in-law and three children survived. So when he arrived back in Paris and tried to seek out his siblings, he, it was really quite devastating for him. And the surviving sister-in-law, Mariasha, was um, really in bad shape when he first found her. She had lost, she had, she had survived the war under a, an assumed identity and had sent the three surviving girls out to the countryside to live with families, under again, under assumed identities. And she was trying, you know, she'd just gotten her apartment back. There was no furniture in it. And she was trying to rebuild. And it was this, you know, encounter with his completely devastated family, I think, that informed the way he was thinking about whether it was viable for French Jews to live in France after the war. Though we're talking very much about uh, Tchaikovsky's acquisition of materials from France, I wonder, is that really the only place where he focused his uh, collecting? No, and that has to do with where Tchaikovsky was during World War II. Um, after he escaped from France in the summer of 1941, he went to New York, and then when the U.S. entered the war, he signed up for the American Army, and it was with the American Army that he returned to Europe in June of 1944, landing at D-Day. Mm -hmm. And um, for the next year and a half, so through the end of 1945, he was stationed first in France as the U.S. 
army made its way across France. And then starting in uh, the spring of 1945, he was stationed in Germany. So much of what he took, actually, in World War II, he took from Berlin. And this was a completely different kind of documents than what he was taking in France. And he took them with a even a more angry attitude than he had in France. Because in Berlin, what he was surrounded by was the papers that the Nazis had left behind. And these, he was um, threw himself into collecting them. Not so much with the aim of, you know, preserving the precious remnants of the Jewish past, but rather to prove something with objective evidence about what the Nazis had done. And it, in Berlin, it was uh, the scale of what he did exploded, right? It, instead of collecting, um, taking his time and asking around and finding things as he had in France, here he's storming into abandoned Nazi ministries that had been bombed out by the Allies, and he's hunting around to find what they have, sorting through these documents with a quite, you know, quite a passion. And he sent home an average of, you know, at least one package per day for the entire six months that he was stationed in Berlin. Wow. And what kinds of documents specifically were they from Berlin? The place where it seems like he got the most stuff was in the wreckage of the Nazi propaganda ministry. Um, And the stuff that he was really interested in there was the collusion of the intellectual elites, you know, professors um, in the Nazi enterprise. And it's this stuff that he sent to YIVO and got used, actually, by Max Weinreich, who was the head of YIVO, who wrote a book in late 1945 called Hitler's Professors, which made use of a lot of these documents that Tchaikovsky had salvaged. So this was clearly looting, right? I mean, what he was doing was illegal. Yeah. So according to U.S. Army regulations, um, this was completely illegal. GIs had been told that they weren't allowed to take any items of cultural value out of Germany. Um, And also, another directive had um, ordered the destruction of all anti-Semitica, that is to say, all books or papers that were anti-Semitic. They were supposed to be destroyed. Um, The only group that was allowed to collect these was the Library of Congress had a mission there, and they were going to collect some Nazi stuff for its collections. But otherwise, you were not supposed to be sending it in packages to YIVO. But interestingly, what Tchaikovsky found when he started doing it was that nobody cared that it was illegal. Um, he was able to wrap the stuff up and take it to the army post office and easily send it. It's clear that even though it was illegal, the authorities on the ground were very pleased with what Tchaikovsky was doing. Um, the other thing is that other Jews were breaking other kinds of regulations to help the Jewish survivors that they were encountering on the ground. So you have lots of stories of um, Jewish army chaplains or Jewish GIs encountering survivors who weren't getting the help they needed. And in these stories, you hear time and again of these ordinary American Jews reaching out to the Jews that they encountered, even you know commandeering jeeps to bring them supplies. And it was the kind of thing that under the circumstances, even though against, it was against regulations, 
was understood very sympathetically by American authorities. And I think Tchaikovsky's actions were seen in that context. So even though they were illegal, they were also seen as heroic. So in that period, people looked uh, at what he was doing favorably. And in some ways, you look upon it favorably. But then after the war, he continued to research and to write and to collect and to steal, in fact, for another decade at least. What do you make of that post-war period of his collecting? Was he just overzealous? Was he greedy? What was his motivation at that point? I think it's complex because what he was doing was definitely pathological. There was definitely an element of pathology there. Um, This is someone for whom, even though the experience of the war was quite traumatic, in a way, in that context, his life also made sense in a certain way that it didn't later. Because when he was in the army, he found something to do that was in the service of his people. Even if he couldn't rescue his family members, he could rescue these remnants that would help the Jewish people in the future. And it was also the time that he was treated, he was was viewed most favorably by the people he wanted to impress. So here were all these people with PhDs, um, people who ran YIVO, who were treating him like he had done a great service for his nation. And when I say nation, I mean the Jewish nation. These people were diaspora nationalists. He, in the war, was treated as part of the Jewish elite. And he really felt like in the aftermath of the war, he was going to be catapulted from lowly, lower class um, writer to someone who would really be part of an emerging uh, cultural elite of a people who consider themselves a nation. And that didn't happen. And I think that you know that just wasn't possible in America for someone who didn't have a PhD, much less a high school degree. So his life after the war, kind of professionally, was full of disappointment. And I think this is part of the pathology, that he keeps returning to this action that made the world make sense, that represented uh, his deepest hopes for what he could become. Um, but pathology... I think, can't explain the whole thing. Because the other part of my research was kind of looking into what this meant for him financially. He wasn't just stealing. Um, By 1950, he was also selling. Uh And I think, you know, once, once I started looking into how much money he made selling these documents, um, it's clear that even though it didn't never made him rich, it actually helped support him as a historian. He would never have been able to be a professional historian working outside of the academy, living on a very low salary from YIVO, had he not also had this business on the side. Why was Tchaikovsky never tried and punished if he'd been caught, you know, at least twice? I think one of the things we see in the story of Tchaikovsky is that over and over again, People cut him a break. Um, and in general, when you when you look at the evidence of why he was cut a break, there was a certain degree of pity. Um, in the first case, in this 1961 case when he was caught in Strasbourg, the chief archivist talked to him directly 
And when Tchaikovsky explained that he was just, you know, a poor historian, he didn't have much time in the town, and he was taking the stuff primarily to simplify his research, to facilitate his research, um, that archivist, whose name was Philip Dollinger, um, he was a historian himself, and he, I think he understood, and he took pity on Tchaikovsky, took the documents back, and figured that it was all, you know, no harm done, ultimately. Um, and he let him go. Uh, we see similar reasoning with the librarians who bought stuff from Tchaikovsky in the 1950s and 60s, who said over and over again, this is a poor guy, uh, and he's struggling to make life as a historian. Who knows where this stuff comes from? But if we can do something to help support him and get these you know, rare documents um, in our collection, then that's the right thing to do. Tchaikovsky's life ended quite tragically. He committed suicide in 1978 at the age of 67. What happened at the end of his life that led him to do this? Yeah. So in 1978, um, Tchaikovsky was doing research at the New York Public Library, and he was going there um, particularly, there was one night a week where the library stayed open late. And he would go uh, at night um, when there were less librarians on, on, you know, sitting in the reading room. And here, too, it was just like 1961 all over again. He was ripping rare pamphlets out of these bound volumes and um, stuffing them into his briefcase. And a librarian noticed that he was doing it, decided not to say anything, but did bring in the police so that the next time Tchaikovsky showed up, they had uh, an officer right there. It was like an organized police sting. He, had, he ripped these pamphlets out of the bound volumes and put them into his bag. And then when he walked out at closing time, um, a policeman was there and arrested him, took him down to jail where he spent the night. And then in the morning, they went back to his apartment to kind of look through what he had there to see if there was anything else from the library. And there wasn't anything else. Um, and then in the aftermath of that, just a few days later, Tchaikovsky checked into a hotel and committed suicide. Did he leave any note or uh, any any evidence about what was going on in his mind? I mean, it, he had been caught before. Why would this have been the breaking point? Yeah. Um, in 1961, he escaped France, and they were unable to extradite him when they finally decided that they wanted to prosecute so that even though he was condemned in France and it meant that he could never return to the country, he actually was able to pick up the pieces and still be a historian. Things were different in the case in 1978. Um, here, not only was the main library he needed to use now never going to let him back in, so the New York Public Library, but they immediately told his bosses at Evo who had actually suspected him for some time. They suspected that he had been stealing within their collections and selling elsewhere, which turned out to be true. So they were going to fire him. Um, his wife saw him come home with the police. So if she hadn't known what was going on in the early 60s, she certainly was going to know. And he was ruined. He was going to lose his job. He was never going to be able to work again. There was not going to be a future for him after being caught in 1978. And it was just too much. 
regular people who are not academic might look at Tchaikovsky's story and say, really, what's the harm? He took a few documents here and there. Sure, he looted, but he did so in very irregular times. So I wonder if you can explain to us what really is the damage that he did? How did he affect uh, the pursuit of, of history? Well, here's where I think, you know, there's both real harm and also, you know, one of the things I try to point out in the book is that it's also more complicated than that because in some ways it's not all harmful. Um, but But first let me just give you a picture of what some of these results are. Um, because what Tchaikovsky was interested in was primarily supporting himself when he stole and then sold, especially when he sold the documents, it means that he broke up collections. So that is to say, if let's say there's records from building a synagogue in Bordeaux, um, they were all created by the same institution and gathered together in Bordeaux at the same time. But because Tchaikovsky went through a collection like that, and uh, he removed some of the documents and took them out of Bordeaux. So what we have here is a scattering of the documents. And um, then when he sold the documents, because he wanted to make more money, he would break up the collection. So not only are some still back in Bordeaux, he sold some of the documents to Cincinnati others of the documents to Israel, and still others somewhere in New York, let's say the JTS. Um, what this means is it's much harder for us historians to put together the story of the past now because you just simply would not go looking in Cincinnati for documents about Bordeaux unless you knew why they would be there. Um, so it, it was bad enough, right, that that Jewish documents were looted so profoundly by the Nazis across Europe. But now we have to think about how subsequent um, thieves, but particularly Tchaikovsky, have affected what remains behind. So if Tchaikovsky grew up in the 1930s at a time when we might admire him as someone who believed that the remnants of the Jewish past needed to be collected so they could be studied, by the end of his life as an archive thief, he was working against that, scattering documents, losing documents, cutting documents, writing on documents, right? And that really works against his very aim. At the same time, I told you that I thought the story is more complicated than just, you know, he messed up the past for us. Um, because when he sold these things, even though he sold them probably just to make money, he actually made them available in new ways. And you can see the effects of this. French Jewish history as a field um, you know, didn't have a place in academia until the late 1960s when the first students started writing PhDs in the field. And those first students were not in France. They were actually doing PhDs in America. And the reason that they did them was that these collections had been acquired. They were told, you know, we just got this stuff. Um, someone needs to work on it. So in a sense, even though Tchaikovsky probably didn't intend it for this, the field of French Jewish history was made possible by these sales. Lisa Leff, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. 
Lisa Leff is a history professor at American University. Her new book is The Archive Thief, The Man Who Salvaged French Jewish History in the Wake of the Holocaust. It's out now from Oxford University Press. You can find out more about it on our website, tabletmag.com. Podcast listeners, be advised there are many ways to listen to our podcast. Find it regularly on our site or subscribe to get an automatic download whenever new episodes post. You can find our podcast. It's called Vox Tablet at iTunes or at any other podcast carrier. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for joining us and please come back next time.